the stroke of midnight. That's what? On New Year's Eve of the last decade of the 20th century. These lines have been abandoned. America's largest city is about to pay for the nastiness of its inhabitants. When that day comes... When the slime starts to rise... The Titanic just arrived. When ghosts start arriving by the boatload... guys. There's only one thing to do. Sometimes, weird things happen. Someone has to deal with it. And who are you going to call? Second of cuts, guys, with the Ghostbusters. The superstars of the supernatural are back. To nuke the spooks. Make some time. Don't put any of those old cheap moves on you. No, no, no. It's different. I have all new cheap moves. Raise your spirits. If we don't do something by midnight, you will be remembered in history as the man who let New York get sucked down into the tenth level of hell. And kick some slime. Looks like a giant jello mold. I hate jello. Oh, come on. There's always room for jello. Happy New Year! Close them. Ghostbusters 2. You're short, your belly button sticks out too far, and you're a terrible burden on your poor mother. Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis, and Ernie Hudson in an Ivan Reitman film. Ghostbusters 2. You're the best! We're the beautiful! We're the only! Ghostbusters! Yeah. We're back! Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! Hello everyone! Welcome to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. I'm your host, Scott White, and this is a very special show. Uh, because I have a, a special guest. She is a friend of mine, a fellow comedian, and my producer. I'd like to introduce Meredith. Nudo! Hi, Scott. Thank you for calling me special. You are special. Aw, you're special to me, too. And if this podcast sounds a little bit weird, we are actually doing this over Skype. This is my first Skype podcast. I've had guests on the show before, but we've always been in the same room. It's the Social Isolation Edition. We have it scheduled to record in person immediately before... Uh... The lockdown, because we, we had, remember, we had it preserved at Station Theater, and the lockdown happened about two weeks before our, our uh, meetup date. Yes, this was on the books. Yeah. So we're just going through it uh, about a month late. Uh, well, the project I have chosen is Ghostbusters 2. Don't get excited if you thought it was going to be Ghostbusters. It's Ghostbusters 2. Now, Meredith, what I usually do in these podcasts is I go through the movie from start to finish, throw in what I think during the way. But when I have a guest, I usually tend to do an overall arcing. So we're not going to go in order. We're just going to talk about the movie, what you liked, what you didn't like, things like that. And we can just go back and forth on that. So how does that sound? Sounds great to me. All right. Being older than you, I actually saw the original Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters in the theater. Did you see any of them in the theater? No. My 
collection of Ghostbusters uh, was the cartoon real Ghostbusters because I am old enough to remember Saturday morning cartoons but was not born when the first Ghostbusters came out. Okay. Now the real Ghostbusters, was that the one with the gorilla? No, no, that was the Hanna-Barbera Ghostbusters. Real right. Ghostbusters was the actual cartoon based on Ghostbusters the movie. That was the one infamously where Egon was a blonde because of some image rights issues with Harold Ramis, I believe. Don't quote me on that. That was also the funny bit where uh, Lorenzo Music did the voice of Peter Venkman. And of course... Uh, Lorenzo Do what? And of course, Lorenzo Music was the voice of Carlton the Doorman in Rhoda. Yes, but he was also notably the voice of Garfield. And after Lorenzo Music died, well, Murray in the movies. Yeah. So that was, yes, we were going to, yes. So it, it comes around. Yes, that always amused me. Uh, but no, so that, that was actually my first introduction to Ghostbusters was the real Ghostbusters cartoon. It, A, it holds up very well. And B, my brother and I, I have two brothers, but one of them is 14 months younger than me. So we, we grew up pretty much with the exact same stuff. But we, we had the Ghostbusters action figures. His favorite was Egon. And part of the reason why I wanted to be on the Ghostbusters episodes is because my favorite was Ray. So I actually saw the cartoon before I saw the movies. I, I don't remember the first time I saw the movie because... The movie was one of those things that, like, I guess I always kind of have seen. Weird, if, if that makes sense. I can't remember the first time I saw it because it seems like I've always seen the Ghostbusters movie. My dad was a really big fan of Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. So anything with them in it was usually on regular rotation in our, in our house. Stripes, um, obviously Ghostbusters. So I, I couldn't tell you the first time I saw the movie. Yeah, I, I extremely, I remember the first time I saw Ghostbusters. It was in the theater and I went with a friend of mine and his big brother. And I, they, and I remember that, I remember that vividly. I just, for some reason, I don't remember, I know I saw Ghostbusters 2 in the theater as well, but that does not have, but that did not have an impact on me like uh, the original Ghostbusters did. Right, and see, the, the second Ghostbusters, I was a toddler when it came out, so I, I, they wouldn't have, my parents wouldn't have taken me to see it because I wouldn't have had any context for it. The ghost probably would have terrified me because I was an anxiety-riddled child. But it, like I said, to me, Ghostbusters was always something that existed. I don't think I saw the second one until probably high school or so. I, I'm always afraid of sequels sometimes. Yeah, very seldom does a sequel live up to the original? Just to state it right now, this sequel is nowhere near close to no, the original. And I mean, this is something that I had a talk with a friend the other day, is comedy sequels are some of the hardest to pull off. Because off the top of my head, the only two comedy sequels that I can think of that really heightened and held their own against the first ones would be Adam's Family Values and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Now I've heard about I've heard that 22 Jump Street is an excellent sequel to 21 Jump Street, but I can't speak to that because I've not seen them. I, I can't offer an opinion, but that's what I've heard. But off the top of my head, the best comedy sequels have been Adam's Family Values and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Christmas Vacation is better than the 
than the original and, of course, better than the second one. So it's weird, like Christmas Vacation, the third movie in the franchise is the is actually the better movie than the three. Interesting. Well, there is no Ghostbusters 3 to go on, so you're thinking that Ghostbusters Afterlife is going to be the best of the, the Ghostbusters movies? Uh, no, it can't be, because Harold Ramis isn't in it, so it, that, takes it out of the, that takes it out of the running right there. It, it might be a great movie, but without Harold Ramis being in it, it's that's going to be eliminated right away. Because even though it's not a great movie, the chemistry between Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and Ernie Hudson, the fact that you get four distinct personalities when they're together, the chemistry between the four, sort of like the Marx Brothers, very, very yeah. hard to get a four-person chemistry going. And they do in this movie. Well, and the, but the problem is, is that Ernie Hudson is missing for like the first third of the movie. I think that was highly to its detriment because what made Ernie Hudson so wonderful in Ghostbusters 1 is the fact that he was very much the grounded, straight man, mitigating, I can't believe this shit voice. And we didn't have that to ground them in the beginning of this movie. And I, I definitely thought that it was to the movie's detriment. Not Ernie Hudson pop up until much later, and even then, given almost very, almost nothing to do. Well, here's the deal. A lot. This is a sequel where they actually get everybody back. They get the, the entire cast. They get supporting players. They get the director that's very rare in a sequel that's not meant to be. I'm not talking like The Lord of the Rings. Right. But Because this was not a planned sequel. This came out, well, the caption says five years. Yeah, so this came out in 89. So this was five years after the original. Everybody, like uh, Rick Moranis, Louis Tully, he doesn't have anything to do in this movie. Uh, Janine, Annie Potts, yeah. she doesn't have anything to do in this. Sigourney Weaver really doesn't have a lot to do in this movie. No, no, and and that that was what was disappointing to me. Is you've got these these real heavy hitters like Ernie Hudson, you've got Annie Potts, you've got Rick Moranis, and they were all just absolute magic in the first movie. And here they were they were sidelined. And I again, I think that was to its detriment. I, I, it's not that I dislike the chemistry between Ramis, Murray, and Aykroyd. They, those three are magical, but what made them work so well in the first movie was the strength of their supporting cast. The four Ghostbusters, I feel, are like a jigsaw puzzle. Like You can put three of them together and they work well. You can put two of them together, they can work in any combination. They work... Because you put, you put Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis together. Well, then you get those scenes with all the... the psych... you know, the, the paranormal jargon... And then you put Bill Murray and Ernie Hudson together, two guys that don't really grasp what's going on, but they're but they're going along with it. They can play off each other like we don't know, we don't understand those two. And then you put Ray, Dan Aykroyd, and Ernie Hudson together, where Dan Aykroyd is filling Ernie Hudson, Ernie Hudson in on what things are happening, and Ernie Hudson gives him an everyman perspective. So there's a lot of different combinations between the you know, the four Ghostbusters, and they work every single one, in my opinion. I, I don't know. I still would really like to see more Ernie Hudson on the front end. I would have, too. I would have, because it doesn't make sense. Because 
Dana Bear. Okay, so the the gist of the story is, if you haven't seen Ghostbusters, is uh, something weird happens to Dana Barrett's baby. Dana Barrett, Sigourney Weaver from the first movie, her and Vinkman have broken up. She remarried. She has a child, and she's divorced. So she has a child in this movie. Something weird happens to the child. The child's in its stroller, and it starts whipping around New York City. So Dana Barrett goes to Harold Ramis, who goes to Dan Aykroyd, to investigate it. So the initial investigation, it's Harold Ramis, Dan Aykroyd, and Bill Murray. No Ernie Hudson. But later, when they're investigating it, they do include Ernie Hudson. So why did they not include Ernie Hudson in the original when they first went to see her, but then included him later. Like you said, that was a detriment to the film. Right, and we don't we don't get a sense of what he's been up to this entire time, too. There was no, he just shows up, but where's he been? Um, I know, did you ever read the IDW comics that were written by Eric Burnham? I have not. Those, to me, those are like, I see those more as the sequel to Ghostbusters than this movie. Actually, I, I know that it's not supposed to be canon because there's several different Ghostbusters canons going on at once. Universes have been introduced and everything because comics and movies. It fills in so many of the questions that we had about what uh, Winston was up to. He uh, he either got married or he has a steady girlfriend. Like they really fill in his role, and I and that's it was it was a very strong follow up because of that. They. They still kept Ray's bookshop, which which I thought was a great, you know, I, I brought up that word heightening earlier, because that's how I saw this, is that a, a comedy sequel should probably heighten the way that an improv scene heightens, if you think of it as a three-beat structure. So we did get a small amount of heightening in that we had, Venkman went from doing like the studies in his lab at the university to having his own TV show about psychic phenomena. Of course not. And that is the whole problem with aliens, is you just can't trust them. Occasionally you meet a nice one, Starman, E.T., but usually they turn out to be some kind of big lizard. <laughs> That's all the time we've got for this week on World of the Psychic. Next week, though, give me Ira. Hairless pets. Weird. Until then, this is Peter Beckman saying, <laughs> See you then. And the guests were about as ridiculous as the people that he had in his lab. Uh, we've got Ray opening up the paranormal bookshop. Both of those are extremely, they're very, they, they make sense when heightening the characters. But it didn't feel like anything else around them had been heightened along with it. So it was, it set up a lot of really wonderful and promising things without much of a follow-through and then we still ended up with the kaiju ending uh, we, we still had you know the, the, uh, it, it, it felt like it, it started to heighten a little bit and then flatlined I, I don't think that Lewis going to law school really really added anything to it, but aside from just a couple of fun scenes in the courthouse it makes it sound like I hate this movie I don't I just don't think that it necessarily works as a follow-up to Ghostbusters, especially since I have the, the experience of reading the Eric Burnham IDW comics, which I think 
did heighten and work that he eventually sent them on a road trip to show what else is happening in the u.s it, it it's not just new york that's dealing with supernatural phenomena so what do you do when you are only four people and ghosts have to be busted elsewhere that answers some good questions the reason they made rick moranis a lawyer was to put him in that courtroom scene that was the only reason gotcha i mean it's not it I, I will say, too, there's not a bad performance in this at all. They're all likable characters. What I did think was weird about this is it's a Ghostbusters movie. Riding the line, besides the ghosts, we had two romantic subplots going on between Peter trying to win back Dana, and then and it's not explained what happened between Annie Potts and Egon, not that he was ever interested in her in the first movie, but she she had a crush on him in the first movie. And in this movie, we have the love interest where she and uh, Rick Moranis are trying to get together in this movie. So we have two romantic subplots in a Ghostbusters movie. Maybe maybe the one with Peter trying to win back Dana. And actually, and then there's a third, there's the a love triangle between Dana, Peter... And Peter McNichol, who's possessed by the painting, so there's yeah, so there's this weird try, you know, this weird love triangle, and then another romantic subplot. Yeah, it just and, seemed and, like there was a lot in this movie that didn't need didn't need to be in this movie. No, I I agree. Um, it, it was a it, it was strange to me that that was how the both of the women characters were sidelined was just romantic interest, especially. Janine out of nowhere being like, well, I want a baby. You'll do Rick Moranis. And I'm like this. Now I can understand her not having a crush on Egon. It's five years later. He obviously had no interest. Get over it. But I don't think that replacing that aspect of her character from the first movie with another one. For one thing in the first movie, her attraction to Egon wasn't really the core function of her character. No, it wasn't. Yeah, the core function of her character, like, her crush on Egon was, like, just more of a fleeting, underscored thing. But she was the she was the really sarcastic, eye-rolling secretary, and this, she was just baby crazy. And, yeah. and most of a great character. Honestly, in this movie, she's just the, the horny, the, the horny older woman. Yeah. Um, Again, what a waste of a great character. Janine was one of my favorites in the cartoon, too. Like, I just love her attitude. And I love I love Annie Potts. Annie Potts should be a household name by this point. I loved Maybe her on, uh, on Designing Women. That's a show that I need to watch. Yeah. I've been told that I would find it very fun and very funny. Um, but I don't know where to watch it. It's a, it's a very funny TV show. Do you know where to watch it? Is it on streaming anywhere? I have no idea. Well, to the internet I go after this, obviously. After this, obviously. That was, a, that was a real shame. Same with Dana Barrett. Dana Barrett's whole point, and, and I adore Sigourney Weaver. I, I'm going to give a, a quick shout-out. Uh, have you listened to the Dreamweaver podcast? I have not. Okay, well, um, did you ever meet Ben Hebert? Um He used to be a comedian here in Houston. Now he's up in Chicago. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he's got a he's got a podcast called Dreamweaver, and he does for Sigourney Weaver what you are doing for Dan Aykroyd. 
Yeah, the Dream Weaver podcast. I got to give them a shout out because they they also recognize what a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant person Sigourney Weaver is, and what a great performer. And it's it's another frustrating thing. You just want to flail your hands and be like, "You have Sigourney Weaver. Why are you wasting Sigourney Weaver?" Especially, she's such a wonderfully gifted physical comedian. In the first movie, they took such full advantage of that, uh, which is what made her performance so memorable, so delightful to watch. And her physicality, the closest that they got was when she was trying to, to get Oscar when he was toddling around on the, on the outside of her apartment. But no, they, they didn't take advantage of, of what a gift she has. You're with Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramis. Three of the funniest men out there, especially Bill Murray. She was able to hang with Bill Murray in the first movie, blow for blow. She's more in the background than this. Like, yeah. Like, as you've stated, she doesn't have a lot to do in this movie. There's a lot of stuff that we could have cut and, and given her a meteor role, which is, which is not done in this movie, apparently. It makes it sound like I dislike this movie, too. And I, I don't dislike it. In the original Ghostbusters, there was a lot of miniatures and practical effects. And I like those better. In this movie, there's more CGI. I know in the first movie we had all the ghosts flying around and stuff like that. But I think it worked in that movie. The, the, the CGI in the first movie worked. Here they rely more on the CGI. The River of Slime where they're in the, in the crown of the Statue of Liberty, you can see, first of all, you can see that it's 1989 CGI, so it's not the best that it is now. But to me, the practical effects, to me, one of the best effects in the movie is in the courtroom where the chairs just start popping up one at a time. I love that. I love that scene. Now, I, I do actually disagree with you on... The effects. Uh, I love the effects in both movies because uh, I, I I know that this was 1989 CGI, etc. But I'll be honest, a lot of the CGI there because it was used on top of practical effects, like the uh, the Fred, what they they call the Fratelli brothers, the the brothers that had gone to the electric right. chair that were tormenting the judge. The way that they used the puppetry in that, because that was uh, ILM did the did the effects for this. Um, and ILM is obviously a legend for a reason. And, I mean, to me, it just seemed like they were taking advantage of what was at the time the most sophisticated special effects technology that they have. But I like the way that a lot of that CGI looked back then compared to how it looks now because it is, CGI that they were using to enhance practical effects, which gives the practical effects something of an an uncanny valley look to it, but still grounding it in reality. Whereas a lot of the way that the special effects look now, I know that we're still working on perfecting the technology. I also understand that um, a lot of studios are bankrupting VFX studios and not giving them enough time or budget to make anything look spectacular and push the technology forward so I, I recognize that there are overarching reasons why cgi today doesn't look as sophisticated as it probably could or should but there's no underlying practical effects to keep a lot of it grounded so 
to me, I love dipping back into this sort of aesthetic. Uh, I just like the original, um, what's it called? Uh, uh, Jurassic Park had the animatronics, but they still use CG to kind of fix some of the jerkiness of the animatronics or something that made it look, you know, less tactile. Yes, or, or fixing any bits that made it look less tactile with CGI. So I, I have always really liked combinations of practical effects and CGI. The, the fact that they redid the thing. They, they, the remake had all practical effects, and then the studio went in and said, nope, we want CGI. And apparently it was a disaster, but imagine what it would have looked like had they synthesized the two together. And you use CGI to kind of smooth out some of the issues that you might have with practical effects. So I, I'm going to actually go against you on this one. I, I enjoyed it. The scene of the Titanic finally landing. She was chasing you? I what? Wait a second. <laughs> Lieutenant, I think you better talk to this guy. I'm busy here. It's some dock supervisor down at Pier 34. What's the problem? He says the Titanic just arrived. Was that, that was so fun. Uh, and then there's also full practical effects. The lady whose fur coat comes to life and starts attacking her and then jumps off and runs off. Those are both fantastically done. And one was CG and one was practical. But I thought they looked great. What you said about the Titanic. I agree that Titanic looked good. I guess what I'm saying is when they all jump in the river of slime, that just looks weird to me. It doesn't look like they're swimming in a river of slime. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I guess I guess in, in some aspects, like the river of slime w was, to me, one of the willing suspensions of disbelief. And did you notice when the Titanic docked who one of the dock workers wa was, were, was? No. That was Cheech Marin from Cheech and Chong? That's what I thought. I just wasn't sure. Um I never watched a lot of the Cheech and Chong movies, but I, I was like, I think I recognize that voice. So, okay, yeah, my first instinct was right. <laughs> it was. I don't. It's just weird, or not weird. He says one line. The Titanic comes in, and he goes, better late than never. And he's got maybe, he's got less than a minute screen time. Do you think he wanted to do that, or do you think Ivan Reitman was like, do you think this would be cool if we had him? Oh, I mean, I just think it was a cameo. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't overthink it. It's a cameo. It's fun. But again, I love that Titanic scene. And, and I, you see glimpses of how this movie could have been heightened. I just don't think it was fully heightened. No, no, it definitely wasn't. Because we still have the big uh, ancient supernatural threat. We still had the, the kaiju in the end. Sometimes heightening isn't necessarily heightening as in making it bigger. They could have had this work on a smaller scale. We could have had Ghostbusters versus the Titanic. And that would have been a blast. There was a lot of uh, bits that I found boring in the movie as well. Uh, the movie is not as well paced as the first one. There's a lot of things that, that slow the movie down. And as I mentioned before, one of them is the, the romance where we see these repeated scenes of, uh, of uh, Dan, not Dan Aykroyd, of Bill Murray and uh, Sigourney Weaver, him trying to win her back. That laid it down. I also thought sending them to the um, the mental 
health facility that was literally like one scene. That scene was that scene was to get Bill Murray's brother, Brian Doyle Murray, into the movie. Okay, but you know what? You know, another another thing that you could have done in the beginning, like there was that quick moment where Rick Moranis was himself a Ghostbuster, which I enjoy. Louis Tully as a Ghostbuster is such a fun thing to play with, and I did think they played with it well. But I mean, you, you could have started off the movie with the three with the three in the, the mental institution and had like Ernie Hudson, Annie Potts, Rick Moranis, and Sigourney Weaver having to ghost bust in their place with only one of them having any experience and then trying to bust out the three that were that were in the mental institution. And then you could have Bill Murray's brother in there too. So that would have been one way where you could have developed everybody. You could have heightened things. You could have heightened some stakes that weren't necessarily um, dipping in the exact same well as last time. And you could have kind of spread those that tension of being in the mental institution out instead of making it a one-scene wonder. Does that make sense? It does. I don't think they would have wanted our four main stars to be sitting in a mental institution for any length of time in this movie. I know. Yes. I know. No, I know what but, you're thinking, but, but that's you're yeah. thinking, you're creative thinking, and that's not studio head thinking. Well, and that's, that's precisely why I'm not a studio head, Scott, and I never will be. Yes. Uh, they're, they're never going to put me at the head of anything because they're like, where the hell is your brain? Are you on some lynch shit? And I'm going to be like, yeah, probably. Now, now here's something you, you talked about. The mayor has a right-hand man who is, he's, besides the ghost, he's the bad guy. He's the Walter Peck of this movie. They didn't get Walter Peck back. Yeah, the guy who was the bad guy at the first in the first one. Yeah. William Atherton. William Atherton. And we got Kurt Fuller, who is the bad guy. Besides the ghost, he's the he's sort of the bad guy in this movie. But yeah. he's the one who gets him committed to the mental institution. In my opinion, he was doing what he thought was right for the mayor. These guys were gonna make the mayor look bad, and even though it was kind of evil. He was doing what he thought was right for the mayor, and when the mayor finds out about this, he ends up firing him. He takes over the obstructionist bureaucrat role from the first movie. Yes. Yeah, because the first movie had the supernatural ancient threat, which we've got in this with uh, Vigo the Carpathian, mm -hmm. uh, and then we've got the obstructionist bureaucrat, which was... For, so, I mean, it, it's, it's the exact same mirroring, too. It, it mirrors... But I think it mirrors so much as to, in many ways, be almost a mimeograph versus a sequel. Does that make sense? It's almost its own remake. It is. It's almost beat for beat. Yeah. Uh, the first and movie. That's where I, and I, I wish, I wish I could love this as much as I loved the first one. It, I didn't hate it, but a lot of times, as I was watching, I was like, I don't know why this exists. Money. I guess money, money, which is why I'm not a studio head. It exists for money. Well, it exists for, I think it exists because of Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd loves these characters. Well, I don't blame him. And he, I, I think he wanted to, it's got to be tough because we heard that even the first one, they had trouble getting Bill Murray on board for the first one. 
and they had trouble getting him on for the second one. And the reason they didn't have a third one with Harold Ramis while he was still alive was because of Bill Murray. And then we had Bill Murray holding out on this one that's coming out, Afterlife. So the movies, I don't think, mean as much to Bill Murray as they do to Dan Aykroyd, because Dan Aykroyd created these characters. Right. So I think he was a driving force to get these going. I think it was money, but I also think that it was Dan Aykroyd. I love these characters. I want to see these characters again. Let's get these characters back. But you're right. It's almost, we have the same montage of the first one when they start ghost busting and they, you show commercials and TV clips. We have almost the exact same thing in the second one with commercial. Yeah. It, it's, it really is, you're right. It's not a, it's sort of a remake slash sequel. It's, it's a mirror image of the first one. Right, and I mean, I'm going to bring this up because I know that inevitably it will come up at some point, so I'm going to head it off to the pass. I'm one of the few people that didn't hate the 2016 Ghostbusters, but I would put the two on the same level here, actually, in terms of quality, where, again, I was watching it, and I'm like, there are elements of this that are so much fun and show the potential for this. I really like the actors. I think the actors are doing a great job. It's not them. It's the structure and the script. And I feel like, you know, if this, if this got a little more... And again, I'm not thinking from a studio head's perspective. I admit, I'm prob- maybe I'm wrong. But I, I would put those two about on the same level. I wanted to love them. I never go see a movie with the intention of wanting to hate it or tear it apart. I'm not... I mean, I, I I had my moments like that when I was in my 20s and everything, but I I'm not at a point where I want to tear anybody apart. I don't want to I don't want to gleefully rip something that is genuinely trying to absolute shreds unless it is a a real dumpster fire of like genuinely bad things. I don't. I wanted to love this and I wanted to love the 2016 Ghostbusters but they're almost the same to me I was actually thinking of the 2016 in a certain scene where it's Ernie Hudson and Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis they're all under the city trying to find this river of slime and they run into these skeletons and they run into these uh this uh ghost train and I I loved it too. And what I loved about it is all three of them acted appropriately scared. They were scared of the skeletons and they were scared of the ghost of the ghost train, especially Ernie Hudson. He does a great job in that. He spells it so well. What's that? What's what? Sounds like a train. Uh Uh-uh. These lines have been abandoned for 50 years. Oh. Probably in one of the tunnels above us. I don't know. Sounds awfully close to me.
I think that was the old New York Central, city of Albany. Derailed in 1920, killed hundreds of people. Did you catch the number on the locomotive? Sorry, I missed it. What I feel is if that scene was in the 2016 movie, they would have just been made, they would not, they would have been making jokes. They would not have treated that scene as it was, as as scary as it is. I think it would have been a lot of one-liners, a lot of ad-libs, a lot of improv, instead of just, we're in this situation, we don't know what's going to happen, we are scared. Yeah. And I think that works better. My problem with the 2016 movie is, in a lot of scenes, they don't treat the danger as real. They treat the danger as, we know we're in a movie, so let's just make smart-ass comments and and make it funny. That was my yeah. opinion on the on the 2016. No. And I think that's a valid opinion. And for people that are listening to this, uh, I I know Scott very well. We talk on a regular basis. Uh, obviously, I produced his, his stuff. Uh, Scott does not come to his criticisms about the 2016 movie from a place of misogyny. So, you know, consider it. I, I'm very sad that the pants-pissing little man-babies ruined being able to talk about the 2016 Ghostbusters thoughtfully uh, because so many of them came from a place of, I just don't want women in my Ghostbusters. <laughs> Bullshit. Um, but no, you, you have good and valid points that I think should be considered. Um, the one thing that the 2016 Ghostbusters, I think, did better than the sequel was the um, the sexy secretary had much more to do. A little devil advocate here. We do have the pissy man boys, but then we have we also have the ultra, ultra, ultra feminists who uh, you won't let you criticize something because then you're just a misogynist pig. They won't let you put out your legitimate criticisms. If you criticize Scott, it in any way, then you're just a, a, a pissy pants. Scott, those are, those are 15-year-old girls. Well. Those are 15-year-old girls who have just read Betty Friedan for the first time. I don't agree with them at all, but I do think that they will mellow out with age. Because well, that would have been me at 15. I don't think it's right. I don't think uh, it's right. No, it's. I'm just saying, both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, but I, I, I will say, though, that it's, that, yeah, no, you, you shouldn't be like, oh, all criticism is misogyny, but it's 15-year-old girls versus adult men who, who gets listened to more. Uh, so, I, I don't know. I cut the 15-year-olds some slack, because I feel like by the time they get to be my age, they're going to be like, oh, discernment. Boy, I was such a dipshit when I was 15 versus these guys that don't ever grow up. They're the same. They're stuck in the same mentality that they had when they were 15. They never grew up. Does that make sense? I, I think that there is a, there's maybe not a difference in maturity levels, but there is definitely a, a difference in in age and life experience. Do you ever listen to movie, Bob? I have Bob not. Shipman? Oh, Bob Shipman's great. He's done a, he, he, has discussed this, I think, in uh, very thoughtful detail as well. But he's like, I'm having trouble because he's like, I, I, I consider myself a feminist. I support women. I want these things. Uh, I didn't like this movie, and I'm upset. It, but I also I appreciate what it was trying to accomplish, 
And I, I do think a lot of 15-year-old girls were upset with that, but I don't know. I agree, but I am saying that they are a very, very, very small minority of feminist critics that are saying this, and they are very, very, very young and experienced. So I don't like what they're saying, but I, I like to think that they will learn over time to calm down and learn a little nuance. And if there's, if any 15-year-old girls are listening to this, um, please, you are welcome to talk to me. I have studied feminist criticism for a very long time, and I would be happy to share what I know. All right. Well, now that we're done with that, how about back to the, <laughs> back to the, the 1989 Ghostbusters 2. I really wanted to enjoy Ghostbusters 2 more than I enjoy Ghostbusters 2. Yeah. I, I, but I also think this movie gets a lot more hate than it deserves because it doesn't live up to Ghostbusters 1. And that's just how a lot of movies are. To me, it's a double-edged sword. You always want to say, you, well, you want to you wanna, uh, have the, you know, grade the, you know, enjoy the movie, uh, re review the movie on its own merit. I can see that. However, it's using the Ghostbuster name, so it's always right. going to be attached to the original. So you have to take that into consideration as well. So it's but very, very hard. A sequel is contextual. Yes. A sequel, by, by its definition, is contextual, which is why I think the two most successful post-original Ghostbusters applications of the of the story and the characters were the real Ghostbusters cartoon and the IDW comics that were written by Eric Burnham because they took these wonderful, memorable characters that people loved and given the format, the format of a cartoon and the format of a comic allows for much more exploration that a budget would not allow for a movie. So if given my druthers, the Ghostbusters movies would begin and end at the first one, but the cartoon and the comics would really flesh that world out and tell some amazing adventures. That's why the Doctor Who comics have been so wonderful, is because the world of Doctor Who is so wonderful and so expansive, and the comics are able to tell stories about those characters that the TV show does not have the time or the budget for. And that's why I... You know, I like the interplay between comics and movies and TV. I think that, that it opens up a lot more worlds. So I, that, to me, is how I see it. Ghostbusters benefited more from medium jumps after the fact to expand on things than movie jumps. I've never played any, but I hear the Ghostbusters games not only are entertaining, but they also continue the Ghostbuster lore in the storytelling of the video games. I've not played the video games, so I can't speak to them. Uh, but I can speak to the real Ghostbusters cartoon and the comics, and they were fantastic. There was an, an episode of the real Ghostbusters cartoon that absolutely has stuck with me, is that they come across a door that says, do not open until doomsday. And uh, the door opens, and they, then they have to face, an actual like global apocalypse, not just New York centric. Uh, like I said about the, the comics, they expand on Winston getting his doctorate and his academic career. And the Ghostbusters have to go on road trips across the United States to, to see what ghosts are like and how, 
how they function and how the society around them views ghosts in other parts of the United States. I like that. It, the medium is able to open up the world in a much more interesting and organic way and play with a lot of the concepts and the characters that have been introduced, but you're going to be constrained with within the span of a 90-minute movie. Yeah, you can I mean, comics is... There's been a lot of franchises, well, Star Wars, for one, where yep. they've just been able to expand in comics. Just uh, Star Trek, Star Wars. Yeah, but we get Poe Dameron's backstory in uh, the comics. Among other people. Among other people. Now, here's something. I didn't like the music. Not the score, but like I think Bobby Brown wrote a couple of Ghostbusters tunes, like a rap Ghostbusters track in there. I didn't enjoy, because every time they started to play Ghostbusters, they only played it for the first couple of opening bars, and then they cut it off, and they went to this other music. Well, I, I, uh, I didn't, I, I just didn't think that Bobby Brown did Ghostbusters, but you're right. Uh, I will not forgive Bobby Brown for Whitney Houston. Just gonna say that. I'm not gonna forgive him for that, but that divorced from everything else. I, it didn't bother me because they did, they updated the music based on the music of the time. Uh, that was why the original Ghostbusters theme right by Ray Parker Jr. I mean, that was contemporary to 1983. So then they moved to 1989. Music has changed by then. So they moved up to a much more contemporary sound. So it didn't, it didn't bother me as much. It's not as catchy or as legendary as the original Ghostbusters theme, but it didn't bother me because I I understood why that decision was made. I can understand it too, but for some reason, I don't the music in the original Ghostbusters doesn't feel dated to me, and the music in this movie totally feels dated to me. Interesting. I, I guess I didn't think I, I didn't think of it in that term, I guess. I was viewing it, I guess, again, within the the time in which it was made. It, it was definitely of its time. It is of its time. It's weird. Like a movie like Saturday Night Fever. Well, of course, that's a movie about 70s and discos. And the, 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 the music dates that movie. However, that whole movie is about, about that time. You know, Ghostbusters is not about the late 80s. Ghostbusters is about ghostbusting. But with all this late 80 music, it 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 can't be the movie can't be timeless in my opinion with that music. Interesting. I I guess I I disagree with you on that. I mm -hmm. I I feel like in some ways timelessness transcends the the soundtrack choices, but at the same time, you're also talking to somebody who's favorite movie of 2019 well one of the, my favorite movies of 2019 was Mandy which relies heavily on synthwave music so I'm not the person to to ask about these things so what was your favorite scene of the movie uh well, I've already brought them up on here but when the lady's mink jacket comes to life and, and like the taxer jumps off and runs off and then the docking of the Titanic Okay. We're actually my favorite. We're so your two part. favorite scenes were just quick cutaway sight gags. Yeah. Again, because I feel like those sight gags really showed what the, the potential of what this movie could have been. 
Did you have a favorite scene that had any of our main actors in it? Okay, well, let me ask you this. I'll ask you this. You said, what is it, uh, McNichols, uh, what's his name? The guy who... Yeah. Peter McNichols. You said his part should have been played by Kevin McDonald? Yeah, it was funny. Like, no, nothing against nothing against Phil McNichol. He's great. Peter. Like, he's a fantastic actor. And again, he's a legend for a reason. But the whole time, the whole time I was watching it, I was like... Was this part written for Kevin McDonald and he turned it down? Because, the, uh, like I said, it, that popped into my head and I was, I was like, this is, this is a Kevin McDonald role. I like the courtroom scene. Oh my God, the Scaleri brothers! Scaleri brothers! Friends of yours? I tried them for murder! Gave them the chair! Do something! Why don't you just tell them you don't believe in ghosts? You gotta do something! Help me! Don't talk to me. Talk to my attorney. And that's me! My guys are still under a judicial estrangement order. That blue thing I got from her. They could be exposing themselves. And you don't want us exposing ourselves. Where we got... That was, that was good. Yes, I, I like the I like the courtroom scene. The one scene that I didn't, I didn't like and I didn't understand, it's when, what's his name, Vigo paralyzes him. And Bill Murray is making the speech. Hey, bimbo with the baby. You should be in... Ca it, that just seemed so weird and so out of place. Not so fast, Vigo. Hey, Vigo. Yeah, you, the bimbo with the baby. Did anybody tell you the big shoulder look is out? You know, I have met some dumb blondes in my life, but you take the taco, pal. Only a Carpathian would come back to life now and choose New York. Tasty pick, bonehead. If you had brain one in that huge melon on top of your neck, you would be living the sweet life out in Southern California's beautiful San Fernando Valley. <laughs> Stakesless. Yes. And like when they, when he possessed Ray, that was very stakeless. Yes, nothing happened with that. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. He possessed Ray, and then they shot, they shot him, and then he was covered in goo. And like, I love everybody now. No, there was no stakes to them shooting Ray. There was never any discussion about, oh shit, this is our friend. How do we not hurt him? They're like, ah. Let's just zap him and see what happens. No, there was no thought behind it. There was no sense of relationship between the characters. But I will say, okay, there is a scene that I liked that had that involved actual people and not beautiful special effects. The scene in when they when Ernie Hudson has finally been able to join the group and they're all sitting around the table discussing the goo. Because I think that that scene gets to the core of everybody's characters and why they work well together. We've been experimenting with the plasm we found in the subway tunnel. Careful. Should I get spoons? Don't bother. Watch this. Go ahead, Ray. You! 
You worthless piece of slime! You ignorant, disgusting blob! You're nothing but an unstable short-chain molecule! You foul, obnoxious mob! have a weak electrochemical bond! I have seen some disgusting crud in my time! But you take the case! You're, you're just... This is what you do with your spare time. Peter, this is an incredible breakthrough. I mean, what a discovery, a psychoreactive substance. Whatever this stuff is, it responds to human emotional states. Mood slime. Oh, baby. <laughs> you mean this stuff actually feeds on bad vibes? Like a cop in a donut factory. We've been running tests to see if we can get an equally strong positive reaction. What kind of test? Well, we sing to it, and uh, we talk to it, and say supportive, nurturing things to it. You're not sleeping with it, are you, Ray? Always the quiet ones. You hound. Because you've got Dan Aykroyd doing his amazing techno babble. That nobody, nobody can do techno babble the way Dan Aykroyd. Can I stop you right there? Uh huh. I 100% agree with you. And I've mentioned that on several, several podcasts. Dan Aykroyd can do the fast talking business babble, technical babble. You are 100% right. He, nobody does it better than him. I'm nobody. sorry. And, and he is really given a chance to shine. And Harold Ramis gets to play someone who is just as passionate and focused on science the way that Ray is, but in a much more measured, um, he's very much like a kindly mad scientist type. Um, he doesn't have the same hand-flailing energy but he's got the same sensibilities. So you've got those two at top form. You've got Venkman being a dick to the both of them about being such brilliant scientists and so so like hyper-focused on talking to this goo. Uh, and then you've got Ernie Hudson, who's not a dick, but also not as absorbed in what's going on, kind of giving the audience perspective of, wow, <laughs> what? Like... Is this real? Who are these guys? Oh, man. But I love it. I'm just going to keep going with it. Like, you're, you're right. That is a good scene. That's a great scene. So, yeah, I think in terms of, of scenes actually involving people. Uh, and then I think that the courtroom set piece is probably the best of the action set piece. And the train. And the train the scenes, too. Uh, when it, when it, again, I, I don't hate this movie. There's, there's things to pick apart where you see the... What could have been? <laughs> well, let's face it. Ghostbusters is very, very close to being a perfect movie. Very, very close. Yeah. The original one. So to try to carry that to the next movie, almost impossible. It's not fully impossible. Like I said, I, to, my, to me, the two greatest comedy sequels of all time are Adam's Family Values and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Here's the weird right. thing. Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd wrote the first one, and Ivan Reitman, Ivan Reitman directed it. Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd wrote the second one, and Ivan Reitman directed it. So it wasn't being placed in other people's hands. It was in the same hands of the people who made the first one. It's just weird that they, they really didn't get close. <laughs> so historically, I'm wondering, do you think that there was much in the way of Studio Midland? I don't do you know. 
if, I, if any stories. I don't know of any stories. I I sincerely doubt it because the first one was such a mega hit and they basically got back everybody. I don't see why they would meddle. It's like, okay, you guys did this one. And maybe there, this might be a time where maybe we did need some meddling. Uh, like me, you know, we we don't need this and we don't need that. Let's maybe we needed some. Maybe we needed some red tape in this movie. Maybe they had too much too much carte blanche. I don't know. Well, that's uh, we've we've hit just about an hour, and I think that's all the time people can take listening to us. Overall view of Ghostbusters two. What what you think of it? I know we've been talking about it, but just just a tight brief synopsis. Oh, uh, Ghostbusters two hit it. I am going to. Um... I'm going to say the, uh, the fifth-generation Georgia grandma uh, summary. Uh, you pat it on the head and say, bless your heart. I mean, it tried. It tried. I don't hate it, but it just doesn't land with me. And it's not that I wasn't open to it. It's not that I didn't want to love it. I did. I just, I wanted to, like run toward it with my arms open, grab a hold of it, and gleefully glomp it over the side of a cliff with love. But it just didn't, it just didn't peak that inside me. It didn't. I'm sorry. Sort of like going on a date with somebody that you had a crush on all these years, and you go on a date with them, and you're like, oh, you're not what I expected. Um, yeah, you're nice, but uh, I'm gonna have to pass. Uh, that's that's how I feel. It's like you're nice, but I'm going to. I'll we I'll rewatch Ghostbusters one, maybe once a year. That's how much I enjoy it. Yeah, I usually watch it a couple times a year. I, it's my big uh, my big favorite Halloween movie. Right. This one I'll watch maybe once every two three years. Uh, I, I actually own I own. Both Ghostbusters movies. I bought the uh, the pack of that's, two. That's what I have. Uh, that's exactly what I have. Look at it. So I do. Yeah, I I have it, but I really only ever take out one. I, I will take out two when I forget what happens in two. That's the thing about two is that I frequently forget what happens in it. So like I'll I'll crack it open a couple of years from now, having forgotten really what happened. Whereas with the first one, I can almost repeat it word for word. Yeah, verbatim. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another Dan Aykroyd podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Meredith Nudo. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Meredith, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, plug it right now. Um, so every other Thursday, I am doing a fundraiser for Station Theater on my Facebook page, Hardcore Nudo Tea. H-A-R-D-C-O-R-E-N-U-D-O-T-Y. I am raising money for the operational cost for Station Theater uh, because its doors are closed right now due to COVID-19, but they still need to pay their bills, so there's a building. So I have been reading um, an old erotica novel from the 1960s, which means that by contemporary standards, it's a pretty hard PG-13 uh, but I've been doing a dramatic reading of it on my Facebook page to raise money for Station. Um, but if you want to know what I'm up to, I have some projects that I can't talk about publicly yet. Um, 
if you can, if you want to know more, you can follow me at my Twitter page, uh, Meredith Nudo, M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H, Nudo, N-U-D-O, and the aforementioned Facebook page, Hardcore Nudo Tea. Uh, that's where I will be posting my announcements and uh, anything that I write for Houstonia Magazine, which I sometimes write for, and um, other other websites that I'm not under an NDA. <laughs> so I, I do have NDAs. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's where you can find me and what I'm up to. All right, and I will uh, leave all the links. I'll get all the links from Meredith, and I'll leave all of her links in the description of this podcast. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to my Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Scott White, and uh, donate what you can. And if you want to find out what I'm doing, all my stuff is on my website, scottyblanco.com. Anything you need to know will be on my website. So, on behalf of Meredith, I am Scott. Thank you for listening to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast, and we'll catch you next time.